This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got? Well, in honor of Valentine's Day, right? Indeed. We are going to be looking at the um, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Yeah, February 14th. February 14th, 1929. So we'll be looking at that. I know, Pete, you love the whole 1920s mob scene for whatever reason. You know, not not dissonant, <laughs> but it seems to be something that you're very into. So, I don't know like, about the mob scene, but I mean, I, I do like the 20s and 30s and like hard-boiled detective stuff, but you know, well, the mob, there's some without here. The FBI is here. With, we'll talk about the FBI. They're, FBI. they're dealing with the mob. Indeed. I don't think it's going to be the longest one, but we'll probably talk about more or less, we'll start off with prohibition and just the rise of crime. And this is primarily taking place in Chicago. I mean, obviously the St. Valentine's Day massacre takes place in Chicago, but the crime scene... I feel like the epicenter of it was Chicago. So I think that's where we're going to concentrate on That's what's going on. Yeah, that we can talk about that because from like, what, 24 to 30, Chicago was basically had a reputation for being violent lawlessness. And it was the same time when Al Capone, right, basically was... uh, Yeah, so let's just get right right to it. He's the the one who's taken all over because of prohibition. Yep. So prohibition essentially starts, but the 18th Amendment in 1920, which makes it illegal to make, produce, uh, distribute alcohol. And consume, as a, everything, consume, everything. Right. You know, when we teach this topic, the biggest effect of the prohibition is actually lawlessness, you know, violence, yeah. lawlessness, and crime, because people still wanted to have their alcohol. And, and ultimately, and as a result. It. Yeah, it, yeah. It, didn't, it didn't stop people from getting it. It just stopped government control of it or government regulation of it. Yep. So you still have the illegal manufacturing of sale. You have the speakeasies. Um, well, actually, there was more gambling. speakeasies. You yes. said there was more speakeasies in New York City during the Prohibition than there were actual bars before the Prohibition started. Yeah, they said Capone was making about sixty million dollars a year, and that's sixty million in nineteen twenty twenties money. Yep, which yep, is yep. very different in money's. Yeah, so his he he was raking in money uh, at this time because of this. Because there's so much money out there on the line, there's going to be rivals, and that's what's going to happen here. So. Compone is, is very powerful, but it's people that want a piece of that pie also. He's going to want to increase his holdings also, and that's what's going to lead to some problems, which then lead to this massacre. And Capone also, just like talking about Capone, I mean, this isn't just about bootlegging, because a lot of it was bootlegging. A lot of it was bringing alcohol down from Canada, right? That was the like the primary um, supplier of our illegal alcohol. But, you know, we're also talking about um, running the speakeasies themselves and running the you know the the drinking establishments, uh, gambling within those establishments as well as prostitution. Like he had, you name it. I mean, he had pretty much like he had an control empire. of it all. Yeah, he yeah. Had, he had a, he had his hands were in all these different pots, and he's making a lot of money. And actually, so Capone gets this uh, this whole empire really starts with his former boss, right, Johnny Torino, Brooklyn. So Torino actually eventually goes to Chicago, becomes one of the main mob bosses in Chicago. Not the only one, which we'll get to in a second. It's a booming business, right? Gambling prostitution is really what he he starts off with. And then when 1920 um, hits and the 18th Amendment, that's when they kind of start shifting a little bit from the gambling prostitution into really bootlegging, per se. That becomes like the most lucrative field. And Capone is his, he's like a thug. He's like a bookkeeper. You know, like a street smart thug. And while he's working for Johnny Torrio, he kind of quickly starts to be promoted, you know, further, 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 further. Um, and eventually, more or less, takes over from Torrio, right? Well, he oh, he retired to Brooklyn. That's so there was a, he was he was seriously wounded 
in a in 1924. There was a they tried to someone tried to kill him. So yep. he, he wounded him and said he just retires to Brooklyn, and then that's pretty, then what um, Capone basically does to that he starts to consolidate power in Chicago, cutting down his rivals. Yeah. Yep. He leaves the business to Capone, and that's kind of where we get into this idea that Capone is not the only gangster or mob in no. the city of Chicago. But, but he is ruthless as far as he's gunning down his rivals. They said in 1924, um, there were 16 gang-related murders, and, this yep. brand, and it continues to 29. And it was actually 64 murders in one year during this time. And like, yep. how is this happening so much? It's because the FBI had, I didn't really have as much jurisdiction as it did today. Yep. And, it couldn't, and it, it had no power over Chicago gang-related activity. That really doesn't change until like- Yeah, well, even like FBI at the time, we have to understand that they were not even allowed to carry guns. They're not- no. Given, they're, not, they're not really getting involved in this. No, yeah. So any form of, and that's this is actually this leads to the change in the FBI yeah. because up to this point, FBI agents did not carry guns, and if they had a gun, they would have to have their own gun, which they would have to have their own permit for. Because they're not issued any form of weapons from the bureau. Also, besides that, their jurisdiction did not go into murders. Um, really thefts nor kidnappings primarily they it was more like insurance fraud or any form of like government fraud counterfeiting stuff counterfeiting yeah Yeah, there was really nothing there that would make them be the main bureau or really the main police force to be going against um, these gangsters and and that starts to really change here because a lot of these gangsters are also robbing banks and they're also start because of the invention of the car they start basically jumping from one state to another and therefore the state police couldn't really handle it because they had no jurisdiction in new states once the criminal escaped to another state so this is also kind of how we have the fbi starts to gain more traction because of the fact that these gangsters are growing it's almost like the people are starting to have a little bit more respect for the fbi as in a sense as like a the federal government can do something about this well they're looking yeah because they get kind of like i guess after this massacre like we talked about people are looking like it's chicago just help us like how is something this crazy happen in the city in broad daylight is there yep. got to be something that can kind of and there like, was a lot of things of like corruption of police like you know if the, if the oh, yeah. police because there's and we'll get to that as well and the, um, there's been so much public outcry that things yep. have to change and there's some police is implicated to some extent in this um, some massacre extent, yeah. as well. So therefore, people are like, well, if we can't trust the police, we can't trust the state, then who can we trust? And that's where the federal government comes into play. Well, you could trust us. And and you have a new guy that's in charge of the FBI, and his name is J. Edgar Hoover, who uh, brings in this idea of um, fingerprinting and checking ballistics and looking at... I mean, what he kind of ushers in, they called it like the lab, the FBI lab. And he's like, no, we're going to be a legitimate force. And and this is kind of co- coexisting and starts to rise up the FBI as we know it because of the rise of organized crime. We should also mention that when Al Capone is a, is a celebrity, I mean, there's movies at the time in 1930s, oh, 20s popular, and you know, 30s. Yeah, know. like they're glorifying ultimately. He's he handing out food during the Great Depression, stuff like that. Like he's yep. doing things. Yeah. He's doing it for his public image. Well, of course. But also... I mean, like I said, it, I mean, as you pointed out, in 29 alone, killing 64 people. Just, I mean, anyone that got in his way, he's slowly consolidating his power. Except there is actually one other enemy um, and one other rivaling gang, I guess, in Chicago at this time. And that is an Irish gang that is yes. led by an Irish gangster, George Bugs Moran. Moran um, yes, the North Side Gang is what they're known as. Yep. 
And then uh, Moran's gang is this all same premise, right? Bootlegging operation. Uh, their bootlegging operation goes out of um, a garage, right? And that's kind of where what how does Saint Valentine's Day really? Well, think, yeah. Play. Well, I guess we'll get into it, right? Capone, yeah. according to what historians were able to put together, is he? They believe he orders this hit, right? Yep. And the, the, the design of this hit is to get rid of um, Moran. Bugs Moran. That, that's the main thing. They want to just get rid of him, right? Yep. Possibly his second in, in command, um, a man by the name of. Albert um, Shelleklek, also known yep. as, he had an alias known as James Clark. Weaver's kind of the ones that they figured out he'd probably be there too, fine, we'll kill him. Doesn't exactly happen that way. And the idea is they're learning in there because they believe that there was a um, promise yep. of stolen high-rate whiskey that was supposedly taken by another gang in the area, a gang known as the, the Purple Gang. Did you see this? Yep, I did see that. Or the Sugar House Gang, also known as. They were um, hijackers, bootleggers, mostly um, from Jewish descent, Jewish gangsters. So they had all these different ones that would work together. And so sometimes they'd work together, sometimes they wouldn't. But what's going on is Bugs Moran was apparently coming in on some of Al Capone's territory, not respecting the boundaries, not paying like you know his royalties basically to Capone. So therefore, he's like, right, I'm going I'm to take him out. And this was the last one. After this, um, historians are very clear about the fact that Al Capone finally consolidated his full control over Chicago after this particular hit. And even though he did not get Bugs Moran, um, he basically destroyed Bugs Moran's operation through this. He was done after this. Yeah, no one was going to no one was going to work with him. Yep. But it also brings a lot of heat dead men on walking. the people. You know, dead men it walking, also right? brings a lot of heat on the people in there. A lot of um, prosecutors will start going after the mob families now, yep. like Capone, a lot of his, his higher his higher up. So it brings a lot more attention to them than probably they would have wanted. And probably they, they thought it would. There's a total of seven people that are killed in this particular place, right? You have. I didn't think it was supposed to be that many people there either. Yeah, they thought it was going to be really uh, Bugs Moran and maybe second in command, like the James Clark, as you mentioned. But really, so Bugs Moran, as he arrives, he's almost there. He arrives there, but he winds up seeing a police car, right? And he's like, ah, uh, police car. And he just keeps on walking. So he actually doesn't make it in there. But. You have Moran's second in command. Um, you also have a bookkeeper, the gang's Moran's good bookkeeper that's there, business manager. You have enforcers, uh, these two brothers that are like the you know, mafia Moran's enforcers, and two other collaborators. And I think there's a mechanic as well. Yeah, that just happened Moran. to be there. Yeah, he wasn't yep. necessarily a mobster. He was just, he did work on their cars. And after this shooting, where you basically, this, this happens at Moran's place, uh, North Clark Street. These guys are shot down. They're lined up against the wall, and they're shot down with Thompson submachine guns. The history of Thompson guns is kind of cool, too, because it's a high-rate submachine gun that came out, actually, was being designed for World War One, And it, they designed it, like, in the last month or so of World War One, and it was just too late to really get them to American soldiers. So all of a sudden, war ends, and we, you know, the United States has designed this, this ultra high rate firing gun and they're like well what do we do with this now and actually they didn't have to worry about it because it became the most popular gun of the gangsters and the gangster mafia and stuff in the 20s yeah, you could just pump out so much ammunition yeah and so eventually quickly. you know it becomes obviously it's brought back into world war ii but before that um you know it's really made a name for itself during this time greetings from evergreen podcasts we're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. 
head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. So when these uh, first of all, did you see this thing? One guy actually survived. Um, he had 14 yeah, so, bullet wounds. Yeah. Uh, Frank, Frank yep. Scoon, uh, Gunsberg, he actually survived. They said he got 14 bullet wounds. They asked him what, um, you know, who did it? He kept on replying, no one shot me. Isn't that crazy? Um, like, yeah, because he didn't want to be a rat. And um, yeah, so he died three hours later. He dies from his wounds. They can't save him, but he, he does die. But basically, um, so they get lured, and like Peter said, they're lined up on the wall. They're sprayed left to right, shot and killed. They're all dressed in their uh, best clothing and stuff like that. You know, they were looking like, you know, because they thought they were going to this business meeting. The big thing was, oh, well, I think two of the people who committed the shootings were dressed as police officers, right? Yep. I'm sure you saw this. So a lot of things, what are they police officers, were they not? But two of the, the people I guess we'll talk about in a few bit about being supposedly suspects involved in this case, that was kind of what they did, that they did dress up as police officers. Yep. That's yep. what they did. But the idea is peace people, this is the middle of the day, people heard the gunshots and to give the appearance everything was under control, the men in street clothes came walking out with their hands up and you had the two uniformed policemen behind them and then they got into the car and drove off. So they kind of oh I guess something did happen but oh the police got the got the got the bad guys got yeah the because the two it. the two fake cops walked out to two other nicely dressed people out yeah. at gunpoint basically like yeah, yeah we're fine we got this we're arresting these people there was something happening but actually all four of them were the ones doing the shooting and and like I said the whole premise was to get Moran and he he was not there and supposedly uh, Al Capone was extremely upset about the fact that that they killed so many that yeah, they killed he, so he, many Capone was in Florida at the time. Yep. So he, he that was his alibi. I'm not even there, right? I'm not there. But apparently, um, George uh, Mar um, Moran was yep. um, on his way there, like you said, and he missed only by a few minutes. And a few days later, he cut up to reporters and he told reporters only Capone kills like that. So, Crazy, like, right? he, he, so he would put it in people's mind right away. Like, no, Capone was definitely part of this. He was the one that did this. There was not many in uh, you know witnesses to this, but there were some. There yeah, was like a driver who who swipes who sideswiped the police car. Yeah, and the police car. The policeman came outside and just said, "Keep on going." That's why they think that it was probably a fake policeman. And it was missing a tooth, and that matches the description of a guy. I forgot the guy's name. Burke. Right? Said, Burke. Fred yeah. Burke. Fred Burke. Yeah. Now, he was like he was probably one of the people involved. He's what you have to understand about this. We'll talk about some people. But no one was ever brought up on charges related to the St. Valentine's Massacre. Yep. No one was ever brought up with, on trial anyway, on, on it because they just never had enough evidence. They think they know so many people were involved. They think so many people were involved were, got killed shortly thereafter yep. for retribution. Uh, but as far as being actually put on trial for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, never happened. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I think that the idea here is, is the big one is this Fred Burke character, right? So apparently what happened here, just before the killings, there's a truck driver, Elmer Lewis, and he turns a corner right around from the garage and he sideswipes this police car, right? So he's like, oh gosh, like I just hit a police car. So he like is about to get out of his car and the, the police officer is like, no, 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 it's fine. Go, 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 go. You're fine. You're fine. But what was interesting, like you said, he paid attention. And he's like, this cop was missing a front tooth. So it's like, that's kind of weird. And there was another witness to the accident. I was standing by the street. And he gave the same description, like, yeah, so this guy hit this police car. The police officer seemed kind of nervous and just said, don't worry about it, go. And he was missing this tooth. So then the police were pretty confident that they were looking at Fred Burke. Um, he was basically a former member of another gang. And they were known, him and this other guy were actually known to wear police uniforms whenever they went on a yeah, robbery. Yeah, that, that was what they think. They used to go on robberies, rob banks, basically, but they would always do it dressed up as police officers. So they kind right. of fit. Because there was some talk that it might have been there. A couple of these police officers that did it because um, 
the uh, North Side gang murdered one of their, their brothers or murdered a yeah. cop's child. So they were thinking may, uh, maybe that that was retribution, but they couldn't really prove that. And this other one kind of fits the story a little bit more, fits the narrative. Yep. And this is kind of where it becomes interesting because they actually do wind up raiding Burke's bungalow, right? They find yeah. a large trunk containing bulletproof vest, about $320,000 in bonds that were recently stolen from Wisconsin Bank, where he was dressed as a police officer stealing yeah, it. But the big thing was they found what? I mean, the two saw. Thompson machine. Yeah, go ahead. They, they, yeah. Found the Thompson, they found the Thompson submachine guns and they do have that like ballistic, you know. Um, yeah, this was new. The new forensic. Yeah, that they could do back then. And they determined that the both that the guns were using the massacre and they were also using the murder of um, a Brooklyn mob boss, Frankie Yale. So yeah. that's that basically that's basically what they were able to um, bring them up on those charges. Yeah, they couldn't actually bring them with the other ones. And they do eventually find Burke about a year later to capture him. You, just because it's like cir- circumstantial evidence, just because he has a gun in his car, I mean his car in his house, does not mean that he's the one that did the shooting. So. Yeah. Even though it was the strongest case they can make, he was eventually sentenced to life imprisonment. What they really got him for was the bank robberies, and they wind up getting this guy that potentially was one of the shooters, but again, we don't know if he really was. He winds up dying in prison in 1940, so he does not stick around too long. And then these guys particularly talk that much No, after they're arrested. They don't really do that. The only one that talks is that man, um, Bar- uh, Bolton. 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 And he talks a little bit afterwards, but he's much older at the time. He's basically that he was involved in it. And stuff like that. They were part of the uh, what they were called the American Boys. Yep. Which was a group of uh, bank robbers, basically that Capone kind of used on and off. And I think that Capone actually yeah, like planned that. Although we still don't, Dan, but we still don't know if it was Capone. I mean, ultimately. No, but they think it probably was, and he benefited the most from it because, like you said, that Morton's business after this was done. Like they still existed as a gang, but they were nowhere. And Capone's reach just kept on getting stronger and stronger um, after this point. I think we should talk about a little bit like the legacy itself of what this did. Like we said, it brought a lot of pressure on them. Um, it's become part of like Americana too. Like the crime, the bricks of the place were eventually demolished in 1967. And the place actually now is a parking lot for a nursing home. But the bricks um, were purchased by a Canadian businessmen and they were displayed in a bunch of these like novelty displays. But now they're on the uh, Mob Museum in Las Vegas. You can actually go there and you can see like the bullet holes and stuff like that. And overall, like I said, a public outcry was uh, was intense and it led Herbert Hoover to really um, give a lot more powers to the the creation of Elliot Ness and his untouchables, right? Yep. Come from this. Um, yeah, so federal government really steps up their game, and, and they kind of are given that ability by the federal government, uh, Herbert Hoover, as well as Congress, like, all right, we got to do this. Supreme Court rules in 1927 that income gained on illegal activities is now taxable, right? So it gives the government basically a strong case for pro- uh, prosecuting Capone because they couldn't get Capone for anything else. They continuously try to, like, after this, Capone becomes number one in Chicago. There's no question about it. Yeah. He's not, he's, I am. The public enemy number one. Yep, absolutely. They're trying to somehow find something on Capone. They find him in contempt of court at times, yep. right? And I guess anything they could just because they know they can't make the other stuff stick. Well, tax evasion is what they eventually get him on. Well, eventually they get him on tax evasion. But before that, they get him on some other stuff. I'm trying to figure out what they well, got. He, fa- he fails to appear. He says he's hurt. He says he's too injured or he's too sick to appear in court. Usually it's failing to appear. Um, he's, so he's charged with being contempt of court and he's sentenced to six months in jail for that. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, then the treasury department launches an investigation on him and that's when they get him for the income tax evasion. Yeah, that's what it was. And, um, and they sent him to prison for 11 years, right? 11 years. And he served seven first in Lansing, then later in Alcatraz, right? We talked about Alcatraz in a mm-hmm. previous episode. You can listen to that. So he was eventually, he's released in 39, but by 47, he's dead. 
Um, he was, he's released, but he's um, basically like a recluse, right? He's very sick. Yep. Well, he also has syphilis. They said that yeah. um, syphilis started, like started going into some of like his. He had brain issues and dementia, and he. They said he was really like a recluse. Like he basically yeah, he died from cardiac done. arrest in forty-seven. Yeah. Yeah. Like very. Once he got out of the jail, I'd say he was pretty much done. He wasn't like didn't have the power he once did. So, I mean, a lot of this really stems from the fact that, you know, the federal government, the FBI went after him because he got so much attention uh, because of the St. Valentine's Day massacre. I mean, this is what brought him full control of Chicago. And that's also what brought the heat on him. You know, like if he he wasn't the number one until he became number one with the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And from that point forward, the federal government basically makes it their mission to get this guy behind bars, which they do. What did this to consolidate power, get stronger. It worked in the short term, but in the long term, it also led to his downfall. All right. Well, I guess this is it for a nice short little podcast for Valentine's Day. Not really the romantic type, but nonetheless. Um, no, 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 no. Uh, still, um, still deals with Valentine's Day. Sure. Right? Yes. Yes. Let's, <laughs> let's go with that. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for tuning in once more. We appreciate it. If you need to find us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. And have an awesome week, guys. Enjoy. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.